Well, is anybody else excited about December 13th this year? Anybody? No? Well, I'm pretty excited about December 13th, and I'll tell you why. It's because uh, part two of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit adaptation comes out on December 13th. And uh, <laughs> since, uh, since our children have been born, Jennifer and I haven't got out to see. I know there are some Nazarenes old school, you know, when movies were, um, and I didn't go to movies as a kid, weren't allowed to, but we have since that has changed in the manual. And uh, we haven't been to too many since our kids were born. In fact, we've only been to one um, since... Uh, our daughter was born, and it wasn't a Star Trek movie. I know some of you are surprised. And it wasn't a romantic comedy. We see those two. It wasn't a superhero movie. It wasn't a dramatic period piece. It was nothing of that. We've only been to one movie since our daughter's been born, and it was The Hobbit Part 1. <laughs> and uh, we know who made that decision. <laughs> now, as far as, ad- as adaptations go of books. I wasn't really that impressed with the first installment of The Hobbit, but I did go to see it. I'm excited to go see part two. And I'm sort of a literary snob, if any of you have noticed. Some have offered me books, and uh, I read them. And in all honesty, I didn't really like any of Tolkien's books from a literary level. Um, I didn't like The Hobbit. I didn't like Lord of the Rings. I didn't like the the Silmarillion. I haven't liked any of them. On a purely literary level, I found all of them hard to get through. So seeing a less than stellar movie adaptation is not really that big deal to me. It's sort of commonplace when I deal with this stuff. But I love those stories. I love the stories. To my imagination, there's something so insightful, something so breathtaking about the world that Tolkien envisioned. And at the heart of his mythology is the character, and it really is a character in the stories of the One Ring to rule them all. The One Ring was forged, and those who know the story, this will be reviewed. For those who don't, we'll catch you up, and shame on you. (laughs) The One Ring was forged by a malevolent being called uh, Sorin, and he created it in secret. And many races in Tolkien's Middle Earth had rings of power. They were talismans which controlled the primeval forces of the universe uh, in one way or another. And Sorin created the One Ring to control all the other rings of power. And once Sorin had created the One Ring, all those who tried to wield other rings became slaves to his will. And because of this, it made the One Ring one of the more powerful objects in all of Middle-earth. And following the defeat of Sorin, many tried to use it for their own purposes. I mean, power is power, right? It's neither good nor evil. It just matters how you use it. Well... That didn't work out very well for most who tried to wield the One Ring. No matter how well-intentioned the person, no matter how just the cause, no matter how virtuous the motive, the One Ring corrupted all who tried to use it. The Ring itself was so filled with hate, was so filled with the evil of Sorin that it twisted anyone who possessed it for any period of time into his minion, into a servant of evil. And the ring did this, it amplified the evil tendencies in anybody who touched it. And so in the Lord of the Rings, and this is another genius part of Tolkien's storytelling, the task with destroying it then had to be given to someone who was sort of lazy. Someone who didn't have much ambition. 
Somebody who was pretty content with the way the world was and wasn't really trying to improve themselves in it. Because anybody who wanted to improve themselves, anybody who wanted to have power, well, the ring just corrupted that quickly. So in the world of Middle-earth, these lazy, content, non-ambitious people were called hobbits. And so the ring was entrusted to a hobbit. But even though it took longer for the ring to corrupt the hobbit than it had for other races and people, in time, it corrupted even him. Now, why should I spend time in a sermon at all talking about this clearly non-biblical story? Well, I think Tolkien stumbled onto an insight that the life and ministry of Jesus had revealed to the Apostle Peter millennia before Tolkien ever began writing the first little scribblings of Middle-earth in the trenches of World War I. And that insight is that evil cannot be used innocently. In other words, to use evil even with the best of intentions will inevitably result in corruption. There are some weapons that cannot be wielded without tainting those who wield them. I think we'll discover together that Peter has tried to teach us a similar lesson. We're continuing today. If you're not there, you can turn there. We're living there, it seems. I've got at least six more sermons planned out for 1 Peter. So if you thought, we're, we're getting close, but we're not done with it. We're continuing today in that larger series on the book of 1 Peter by beginning a new three-part mini-series entitled Embracing Submission. Embracing Submission. And as we investigate Peter's teachings in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12, over the next three weeks, we're going to listen to Peter's exhortations in three areas of submission. The posture of submission, the purpose of submission, and the power of submission. So for part one today, we'll be endeavoring to hear Peter's exhortations regarding the posture of submission. The posture of submission. So if you have your Bibles open, if you don't and you can find one, I'll invite you to turn with me. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, very, towards the very end of the Bible in the New Testament. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And I'm reading again from the most recent New International Version. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by Him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's where we're going to end for today. Now, for those who've been with us throughout this series on 1 Peter, you'll notice that Peter has once again returned at the beginning of those verses to describing Christians as foreigners and exiles. When, I taught, when we preached that first sermon, the first sermon of the series was called Embracing Exile. The entire thing was about being exiles. Maybe there were people who thought I made too much of that. It comes back over and over, doesn't it? He can't stop saying it. He returns to it again and again. 
That language of exile was at the heart both of the sermon Embracing Exile and the series that we just completed, Embracing Priesthood. And here it is again. Peter has reminded his audience and us through them that Christians must recognize that it's God's will, not that we set up kingdoms of God on earth, but that we are exiles scattered amongst the nations of the earth. He says it again. But at this point in the letter, that's a given now. Peter has established that. That's a foundational starting point for what he's about to talk about. And in these verses, he's begun to build upon that foundation of Christians as exiles in the world, as foreigners among the nations of the earth, as priests scattered amongst the nations for the purpose of interceding for the world. And he's building on that foundation to ask what that then means for our ethics. How should we live day to day in light of that reality? What does it look like to live as exiles in the world? Priests scattered amongst the nations of the earth. If Christians are exiles, if, if we are the elect of God, if we have been called to pour ourselves out for the sake of the world, if we're priests interceding for the world and bringing the world before God as they don't recognize Him, nor will they consent to worship Him, then what is our life to look like? What should be our highest virtue? To use the language of an old holiness hymn, what should be our watch, word, and song? Yeah, some of you, the old holiness people know how that song goes, right? Holiness under the Lord is our watch, word, and song. And in a way, that's exactly what Peter's driving at. The problem is we all have different definitions of holiness, and of course it needs to be defined. We are to be a people set apart to God, which is what holiness means. And such a people look and live in a certain way. And Peter begins these verses by describing it. Did you notice, end of verse 11? Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Okay, so we must abstain from sinful desires and live lives of such goodness that even when we're accused of wrongdoing, there'll be something meritorious about us. Okay? But that's pretty vague, right? I mean, what are sinful desires exactly? What are these things that are waging war against our soul? And what does a good life look like? Well, Peter's answer to what a good life looks like is... Submission. Submission, according to Peter, is to be the watchword and song of the Christian church. Submission is what holiness looks like. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Submit. The Greek word translated submit comes from the verb hippotasso. Can I say that with me? Hippotasso is the word. And it means quite literally subject yourselves or place yourself in a subordinate relationship to. To who? To what? To whom? To every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. That doesn't sound right, does it? 
What does holiness look like for Peter? It looks like submission. And even though there's something when we have it put in this way, right? Up till now, we've been with Peter. Everything looks good. Until now, and we wonder why we're studying this book, right? Seriously, submit to every human authority. That doesn't sound like the gospel. But it really shouldn't be surprising for us. At least not for those who have been with us throughout the whole series that we've been doing here on 1 Peter, because Peter had already argued that holiness looks like love. And he had argued that love looks like Jesus laying down his life for his enemies. Now, of course, Peter is clear that we don't submit to authorities for the sake of those authorities, as though they have their own merits. Our posture of submission is for the Lord's sake as we endeavor to live as slaves of God in the world. Even so, Peter's base principle here is that followers of Jesus, foreigners scattered amongst the nations of the earth as exiles, priests of God in the world, submit themselves to every human authority for the sake of the Lord. And it would be helpful, wouldn't it, if Peter wrote those words and he was living in a pristine Christian context. You know, he was living in a Christian nation where Christianity was the, the law of the land and everybody was, was hospitable to Christians and the ethics of every law that was passed were consistent with Jesus. Right? Then it would be easy for Peter to say, submit to every human authority. It was such a pristine moment. But that's not where Peter lived. He didn't write those words in the midst of a Christian nature or even a culture that was hospitable to Christianity. Peter and his people lived in the context of the pagan Roman Empire. And they were undergoing persecution at the hands of those authorities at the time he penned these words. But despite these realities, Peter argued that submission is what God desires of his people. Submission. In this time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And for Peter, even more, it's this submission, this posture of submission that will be a testimony to the world regarding the nature of God and the kingdom that he wishes to establish. And Peter summarized the entire idea. It doesn't happen that much in the Bible where they summarize their idea in a nice little pithy saying. Matter of fact, this is so good and so central to Peter's, go- to Peter's presentation of the gospel here that if you're going to memorize a verse of Scripture from P- 1 Peter somewhere, this is the one. I mean, teach this to your children. Recite it yourselves. This is it. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's Peter's summary of his position. Now, of course, Peter lived and he wrote in a social context very, very different than our own. It wasn't the same. He lived under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, the average inhabitant of the empire and even the average citizen of the empire, and they were different. different. But no matter which state you were in, whether just as a conquered people who were living under Roman rule or a subjected people or whether you were an actual citizen of Rome, in either case, the average person had very little influence over the governance of the empire. Now, it goes without saying, right? We don't live in that kind of a world. We live in a representative democracy, for lack of a better way of describing what we have here in America. And our involvement in government and political discourse is much greater than would have been true of any believers in the ancient Roman Empire in the first century A.D. So disagreements with governing authorities and debates over correct national action, if you, if you had those disagreements in Rome, it would have been considered seditious. It would have been a form of treason. But in our context, these things are not only permitted, but we could argue they're even expected of citizens in a democratic republic like ours. 
And so maybe those differences of time and space make all the difference. Maybe Peter is not authoritative for us, or at least these words are not very practical. Maybe we can skip over them because we simply don't live where he lived and he doesn't live where we live. If that's your opinion today, can I politely say, I think you're wrong? Let me disagree. I think Peter has delivered an ethic to us that persists despite the differences that existed between his culture and ours. And that ethic relates to the discussion of Tolkien's One Ring that I spent all that time at the beginning describing. In nearly countless ways, the gospel of Jesus spoke against the structure of nations and societies and communities and families, even in Peter's day. To say, for Paul to say that there is no slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male and female in Christ, that's radical. I mean, that's upending. If anybody were to try to live that out in real meaningful ways, the whole empire would have been turned upside down. For Peter to say that all of us, irrespective of our national origins, our ethnicities, our social classes, our gender, are all priests of God. For him to say that, that's radical. The church was never going to be able to live that out in the Roman Empire consistently. I mean, maybe they could do it in their churches, but they would never be able to do it in the wider world. That just wasn't the world in which they lived. So if they were convinced that God wanted them to live that out consistently, there was really only one way that was going to happen. They were going to have to take up arms and revolt and set up some sort of a kingdom of God somewhere on earth where they could live out the principles of the gospel without persecution and without having to submit themselves to the laws of rulers that didn't understand God or Jesus or anything else. And perhaps some in Peter's context believe that. Matter of fact, some of Jesus' disciples came from traditions that did believe that. They were called zealots. He had at least one, Simon, who was called a zealot, who would have believed in what I just described. Perhaps some assume that Christians had to live out the full vision of the kingdom of God, even if it meant revolting against governing authorities. I mean, these people are pagan anyway. So maybe some were advocating that we take up arms, that we throw off the yoke of Rome, that we set up some sort of a Christian Jewish nation with a capital city in Jerusalem and let Jesus' teachings be the law of the land and through that nation change the world. Maybe there were some who were arguing that. It sounds reasonable. It sounds historical even. But Peter said no to that thinking. As radical as the gospel might have been, as countercultural as its claims, as upending as its values certainly were, And as impossible as it all would have been to live out completely in the Roman Empire, Peter insisted that Christians were to live as exiles. Exiles. And one of the key definitions of being an exile is that you don't live under your own authority. Exiles live under the authority of nations they are foreigners in. Exiles. The world would not be transformed, according to Peter by force of arms, or revolutionary movements, or rebellious stances towards governing authorities. According to Peter, the world would be changed in the same way the world had been saved. Through submission. Through the laying down of a life. Jesus saved his enemies by laying down his life for them, and Peter insisted that the transformation of the world would be accomplished by the followers of Jesus doing the same. Why? Why? Well, perhaps J.R.R. Tolkien can actually help us to understand this a bit. 
I mean, if goodness for Christians, and Peter assumes this, if goodness for Christians is to be defined by Jesus, if whatever it means to live the good life, the holy life, the Christian life, is to be defined by the life we see lived out in Jesus, and Peter seems convinced that that's where goodness is to be rooted for Christians, then goodness fundamentally is an ethic of submission. Jesus submitted to God in all things. He said it over and over again. I do nothing of my own power. I do only what I've been told to do. He submits to God consistently throughout his earthly life. He says it over and over again. And he submitted to Jewish traditions and laws. He didn't begin his ministry till he was 30 years old, which was Jewish tradition, that he wouldn't be considered a rabbi till that age. He was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the Gospels. He was raised in Judaism. He went through a bar mitzvah, we find out in Luke chapter 2. Jesus went to all of the festivals of Judaism, celebrating Passover, celebrating Pentecost, celebrating Sukkot, celebrating Yom Kippur, and the Day of Atonement, and even Hanukkah, which is called the Feast of Dedication in the New Testament. He submits himself to Jewish traditions and laws in all possible ways. The only time he refuses to do that is when it would compromise the will of God for him. And Jesus submitted to Rome. Not only do we have at least one instance of him paying taxes, but he also allowed Pilate and the Romans to execute him. Rebellion and lawlessness in all their forms are incompatible with the example of Jesus. If Jesus defines goodness, which Peter argues that he does, then these other attitudes help to explain what Peter meant by sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Essentially for Peter, they are the desire to be autonomous, to be unencumbered, to be self-governing. If Christians were to try to overcome evil, and this is where Tolkien comes back in, by first putting on the cloak of evil for a time, then perhaps Tolkien can tell us what might happen to us. Evil cannot be used without consequence, even for the overcoming of evil. If we partake in evil, even for the purpose of defeating evil, we will become that which we seek to destroy, and evil will still exist in our world. It'll just not be those we've destroyed, and now it'll be in us who destroyed them. As the one ring corrupted all who wielded it, no matter their intentions, so evil always corrupts those who take it up, no matter the purpose for which they wield it. These things are not neutral. We live in a world, of course, quite different than that of Peter. But his words speak no less poignantly, I don't think, to us today than they did to the people in his time. Now we are, of course, free to engage in the political process in our context. We're welcome to debate and discuss the issues of our governance. And we're even expected to present our opinions to those who are in authority over us. I don't believe Peter would have ever asked us to opt out of that. In fact, in our context, submission to governing authorities may imply that we should be the most involved citizens in the country. Perhaps our voting turnout as Christians should be near 100%, if we're really submitting to the governing, as it's been intended. Perhaps our engagement with significant political issues should be assumed as part of our submission to the governing authorities. Perhaps our correspondence with elected officials and representatives should be regular, because we submit to the governing authorities. However, whatever our involvement should be, Peter's words continue to guide us as to what our involvement should not be. We should not be rebellious. We should not be disrespectful. We should not be disdainful. We should not be incorrigible.
We should not be people who refuse to be corrected. If Peter could exhort Christians in his day to submit to a governor who believed himself to be a god, not metaphorically, literally thought himself to be a god in the person of Caesar. If Peter could tell Christians to submit to that, then certainly we can hear his words as commendations for us to submit ourselves to the laws and governors of our times as well. Our posture is not that of a raised right hand or a rebellious revolutionary. Our posture is one of submission. And for Peter, this is the posture of godliness. It's the posture of Christ-likeness. It's the posture of holiness. It's the posture of love. Now, of course, our principal loyalty is to God. And we are not to obey governing authorities if obeying them would force us to disobey God. But even if we are forced to disobey, we can still disobey in a posture of submission. Jesus would not obey the Jewish leaders who insisted that He not heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus would not obey the Jewish leaders who insisted that He take back His claims of being God. And Jesus would not obey Pilate and simply deny that He had any authority over Rome. He refused to obey in those circumstances. But even though He wouldn't obey, Jesus did submit to their judgment. First to the judgment of the Jewish authorities to have Him handed over to Rome, and then to a Roman death sentence. Perhaps one of the more important bits of wisdom that Peter can deliver to us today is the wisdom to see that disobedience and rebelliousness are not the same thing. Jesus shows us that submitted people may sometimes need to disobey their governing authorities out of obedience and submission to God. But disobedience does not justify rebellion or lawlessness for Christians. Our posture, whatever we must do, is of submission. We will not take up evil to overcome evil, but we are of those who follow Jesus, who overcome evil with good. Let me provide an example. If This is hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp for me as well, which is why I'm happy to have gone through Peter again, because I feel like I'm starting to get a handle on what he's doing. Let's say a Christian believes that they are honor-bound because of their submission to God not to pay taxes to the federal government. That's not a hypothetical. I've met people, Christians, who believe that. There are some who are constitutional Christians who believe the Constitution says they don't have to pay taxes and so they refuse to pay taxes. There are others who believe that they shouldn't be paying taxes to secular authorities. Now, I'm not going to debate the merits of the position, but there are people who believe this. So let's say that by conscience there is a person who believes that he or she cannot or should not pay taxes to the federal government because of their submission to Christ. Let's say that that person exists. I know they exist. Let's say they exist. Now, they may, because of their conscience, have to refuse to pay taxes. Let's just say that that's okay. But this sort of disobedience does not have to be rebellious. A posture of submission would suggest that the person would proceed to explain to the IRS and the federal government that they will not be paying taxes, tell them why, and submit themselves to their judgment. Which means, among other things, imprisonment. If we feel that we must follow God into disobedience, we must still be submissive by accepting the judgment of secular authorities to punish us as they see fit. 
If we seek to evade the consequence of our obedience to Christ by hiding it or concealing it, or are we submitted to the governing authorities? No. Rebelliousness tries not only to disobey, but to evade the consequences of disobedience, either by overthrowing the government that seeks to judge them, or by concealing their behavior from the government. Rebelliousness not only disobeys out of faithfulness to God, but it tries to deny the authority of secular authorities to punish that disobedience. We may as Christians at times find ourselves forced to disobey, but part of submitting ourselves to every authority instituted among humans is accepting their authority to punish us as they see fit for our disobedience. If my parents, if I was a child and teens still are and other kids, if my parents required me to do something that caused me to disobey God, then I would refuse to do it, but I would still submit to their discipline. That's the essence of being submissive. The posture of God's exiles in the world, the posture of the elect of God, the posture of God's priests, the posture of holiness, the posture of love, is the posture of submission. This, for Peter, is the cardinal virtue of the kingdom of God. And all who wish to follow Jesus must embrace the pattern of Jesus, the posture of submission. Now, over the next two weeks, Peter is going to help us to explore what submission looked like for Christians in his day in their particular context, in their various social contexts. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to put flesh on this concept of submission as we explore its purpose and its power. But the whole conversation begins for Peter with the central place submission has in the ethics of the kingdom of God. What does that look like for you in your relationship with the federal government? These are questions we have to ask. Peter forces us to. What does that look like for you with your relationship with the state government or with the local government or with our employers or with our bosses? I don't know in every circumstance, but it always looks like Jesus. And it always looks like submission. So the question I think Peter asks us as a church, that he asked his own people in a day where they were being persecuted by a government that clearly didn't honor God, that didn't stand for anything that Jesus taught, in many ways was actually fully engaged in opposition against the gospel of Jesus Christ with the agenda of snuffing it out eventually. I mean, the Roman government would eventually try to end the gospel. Under Diocletian, some decades later, they would try to burn all the Bibles and execute as many Christians as they could find. So this is not a context where the gospel is uh, you know, well-received, really. But in that context, Peter still says, honor the emperor. I think his challenge to Christians is to recognize that the revolution God wants cannot be achieved by taking up the arms of evil to achieve it. We must trust in God's goodness to achieve what we cannot achieve by force of will. And Peter is calling us to recognize what Jesus did. The world was saved from sin, not with a sword or with a war or with the spilling of blood or with the overthrow of a government, but by the death of Jesus. Through that death, He has saved us all. And God has asked us to trust that through our submission, He will transform the world as well. We can trust Him but we must trust Him with the consequences of obedience. Will we embrace that posture of submission today with respect to human authorities? That's our challenge, I believe, from the Word. Would you pray with me?